I, I can always spot, you know, is this a film that's had Department of Defense support? Is this a film that's had CIA support? You know, probably one night in two, I'll find a film or a TV show that has been affected at script level by, uh, by one of those entities. Matt Alford and Tom Secker have uncovered evidence of how the Pentagon and the CIA have changed the scripts of hundreds of Hollywood movies to whitewash history and manipulate U.S. citizens. Their latest book is National Security Cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. And if democracy is not working well at the, you know, the institutional public level, we think that it's worth giving it a try at the private level. Philip Kitcher and Evelyn Fox Keller, both professors of philosophy at Columbia and MIT, respectively, want to get us all talking about climate change. Their book is The Season's Altar, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. Time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. We are suggesting that there are actually thousands of products that have been affected uh, since the dawn of um, Hollywood um, by the national security state, uh, and a lot of the time that involves script changes, and at least for big chunks of the time, does involve script changes that are very political as well, which basically means that Hollywood is um, kowtowing to the military interests of the American government. Matt Alford, along with Tom Secker, have exposed new evidence that the national security state, led by the Pentagon and the CIA, have forced script changes on over 800 Hollywood movies and over a thousand network television shows to cover up crimes and to manipulate U.S. citizens. They document it all in their new book, National Security Cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. That is coming up in the second half of the show. But first... People who are going to um, or foresee possibilities of losing very large profits if we turn away from fossil fuels, those people are doing a lot of funding to muddy the waters. Professor of Philosophy at Columbia, Philip Kitcher, talks with me about how if human beings hope to survive the looming climate catastrophes, we will need to talk it out, one-to-one, in families, neighborhoods, and social gatherings. The power of grassroots democracy is the theme in the latest book he co-wrote with MIT professor Evelyn Fox Keller, The Season's Altar, How to Save the Planet in Six Acts. He's with me via phone from New York. Welcome, Dr. Kitcher, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you very much. It's, I'm very happy to chat with you. I'm uh, very fascinated with this book, uh, the format, uh, especially in terms of, of a dialogue. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how this book came to be and, and how you came to decide to present the material in this way? Evelyn and I have been worrying about this issue for about a decade and uh, wondering whether we should try to write something or whether, uh, whether there was already so much that was written that there wasn't really anything more to say. But feeling that, that the issue is so overridingly important that we had to do everything we could to try to get it into the uh, public discussion. And both of us were really upset and saddened by the polarization of uh, American public discussion around these issues. Uh, it's not ju just in this country either. It's also uh, very much in the English-speaking world. So we started writing a fairly orthodox book, and our editor at uh, Norton uh, said, look, this is, this is all um, good stuff, but couldn't you be a little bit more dialogical? And that sort of lit up a, a light bulb inside my brain, and led me to say, well, if it's going to be dialogical, why not write dialogue? 
And I didn't want to write the kind of stiff philosophical dialogues that philosophers uh, so often write. I wanted to write something that, as it were, brought the issues alive and put people in uh, everyday settings. It seemed to both Evelyn and to me that the important thing to do was to start a grassroots activity of conversations between people who disagree with one another but respect and like one another. And some of our characters in the dialogues not only respect and like one another, they even love one another. Um, so we wanted to, to, as it were, put two voices in conversation with one another about a whole range of issues and have them talk th them through as a kind of model for how people might, in small groups, in all sorts of everyday settings, try to wrestle with what we think of as one of the really great and um, frightening questions that's facing not only uh, Americans, but human beings at this moment. So what have you uh, discovered as you're watching the dialogue, or a lack of it perhaps, uh, regarding climate change? What are the obvious things that are, that are missing in the discussion? Well, there's a tendency, which our book is an attempt to resist, to compress a lot of things. So people may start out by saying, well, is it really happening? Are we really causing it? But then as the public discussion goes on, uh, that gets muddled up with all sorts of worries about what it's going to mean for their lives. Um, that's perfectly reasonable if, in fact, we have to change all sorts of things about the way that we um, produce energy. That is going to have a lot of impact on people's lives. And it also um, gets muddled up with issues about the extent to which the problems that are here in the world now, very obvious, not only in uh, the poorer parts of the world, but in many affluent societies as well. Um, those problems surely need to be taken care of. So people who resist climate change will often start by saying, well, I've heard that uh, scientists are divided about this, but very quickly they'll move to, well, this is going to be incredibly burdensome and I'm already facing all kinds of problems. My work situation is precarious. I don't have good medical insurance. My kids go to lousy schools. And all of a sudden, um, instead of having a clear structure of what the issues are and how you might work through them one by one, it gets to be very confrontational and very, very polarized. And we want to get people beyond that. So part of the aim of the book is actually to separate issues and show how there's a kind of progression from the most basic question about climate change. Is, it, is this really happening and are we causing it? to issues about what kinds of things are needed in our society to protect people, what kinds of things can be done, uh, what, is it, what are the economic costs likely to be, and how we get cooperation across the globe. It's a sequence of questions. So we begin with the science and we end up with issues about international politics. And along the way, we take in a fair bit of stuff about economics and about uh, ethics about what we owe to one another and what we owe to those who will come after us. The book is Six Acts. Is it real? So what? Uh, why care? What can be done? Who pays? A new politics. The six uh, chapters, uh, the six acts of the book, The Seasons Alter. And so the first chapter, really, is it real? I mean, that's the one that's getting a lot of pushback. Uh, I, I, I'm going to put out the sinister forces here who, who uh, want to muddy the waters regarding this. Well, of course, of course. I mean, many people when, uh, who, who don't think that climate change is real, when you ask them, they will say, well, you know, the scientific community is divided. Um, that's because they know that there are people who have scientific degrees or are easily confused with scientists who will come forward and, as you said, muddy the waters. Now, the interesting thing about this is that many of these people are very lavishly supported by energy companies and by right-wing think tanks. That's a real problem. 
you know, a well-meaning person says, look, there's just all this shouting going on, backwards and forwards. There are some people who say it's happening, some people who say it isn't happening. Why don't we just wait until it's all sorted out? And the answer to that is, this is one of those issues where not to decide and to postpone is already to make a decision. Because if you actually say we don't need to do anything till there's more evidence in or something like that, what you're actually saying is that the climate scientific community is wrong. It isn't as urgent as they say it is. Because if the climate scientists are right, this isn't something we can afford to postpone any longer. We've postponed it long enough. And indeed, the scientific community, the climate science community itself has spent decades really nailing down the details of this. And so our first chapter is an attempt to show that and also to uh, uh, undermine the idea that this agreement could have come about as some sort of mafia-like um, operation on the part of, uh, of climate scientists. And rather to say, well, if you want a conspiracy theory, the obvious conspiracy theory is that people who are going to... Um, or foresee possibilities of losing very large profits if we turn away from fossil fuels, those people are doing a lot of funding of people outside the climate scientific science community uh, to muddy the waters, as you put it a few moments ago. Philip Kitcher is my guest. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, uh, he, along with Evelyn Fox Keller, have written a book called The Seasons Alter, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. And many people, I, I, I can imagine, when we think about climate change, our, our eyes glaze over. The problem just seems so big, so huge, uh, hard to even think about or hard to think we can do anything about. Uh, is there a, a, a psychological barrier to even considering something that's just so dramatically foreign to our, our worldview? Well, I mean, the stages of denial go from, you know, saying, well, it's not really happening to, well, even if it is happening, it doesn't really matter that much. And then beyond that, when you admit that it is happening, you say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. The answer is, of course, there are things we can do about it. It is possible to switch from using fossil fuels in the way that we use them. It is possible to change our agricultural practices in ways that would cut down on greenhouse gas emissions and eventually to eliminate them completely. I mean, we, unless we devise a technological solution, and we're not opposed to the thought that uh, it's a good idea to try technological solutions, a technological solution that would enable us actually to take some of the greenhouse gases that have already been emitted out of the atmosphere. Failing that, what we've got to do is stop emitting them. And that's feasible. It's not clear exactly how to do it. And indeed, this is part of the reasonable concerns that people can have, that when we start going down the road of uh, trying to replace all our energy sources with renewable sources of energy, it's probable that there are going to have to be quite a lot of changes in how people in affluent countries live. We're going to have to very probably redesign our cities, and we're going to have to get used to living in perhaps smaller houses, actually not smaller houses than most of us live in, but uh, smaller houses than the most affluent people live in, and we're going to have to get used to things like uh, using public transportation. And there are going to be other kinds of things that are going to be difficult to sustain. In the chapter in which we, we take on possible solutions, I mean, we've got to worry about things like international travel. How is that actually going to work in an age when we no longer rely on oil and coal and so forth? That's tricky. And so there's going to have to be some combination of changes in the ways in which people live and in the ways in which we replace existing sources of energy with renewable uh, sources. What uh, scares you most about climate change? What worries me most is that when we think about it, we tend to think about it in terms of 
individual episodes and in terms of constant effects. By a constant effect, I mean many people get worried about the fact that the sea level is rising, and they think in terms of averages. They hear that the sea may rise a foot or a meter or something like that. That's pretty worrisome if you live in some parts of the world, and the Dutch are doing things about this, and people in Florida probably should be doing a lot about it. But it's actually not the averages that are the trouble. It's the extremes. And in the last few weeks, of course, we've seen how extreme events can uh, really disrupt people's lives, first in Texas, then in Florida, and now in Puerto Rico. Not to mention you know, all the people in the Caribbean who have been devastated by these hurricanes. Climate science predicts that that's likely to be even worse in the future. There are going to be more extreme heat waves, more extreme droughts, more extreme wildfires, more extreme floods, and more extreme storms. What we've just seen is that these can come on the heels of one another. And that, I'm afraid, is the really worrying thing about the future. The way in which a nation that's reeling from one disaster has to cope with another one. So just as you, you're trying to respond to a huge disruption of the population in some area of the country, perhaps caused by a storm, you have to respond to another devastating event somewhere else, perhaps another storm, perhaps a heat wave, perhaps a flood, perhaps a, a set of wildfires that are breaking down. All of this can combine. And so what really scares me about the future is the ways in which these episodes combine and the ways in which they bring about other kinds of changes in their wake. Because as the climate shifts, so do uh, the relations between human beings and lots of animals. And that can allow for the spread of new kinds of diseases. Evelyn and I think that the, the real worry about the future is that you've got a bunch of people who've been displaced from perhaps millions of people who've been displaced from a particular region, who haven't had access to water for a long time, who are dirty, who are traveling with a few possessions that they can manage to bring with them, who are moving into territories that other people inhabit, those people struggling to deal with uh, their own problems. And this is accompanied by the spread of disease, by further crises, and that this whole thing spirals out of control. So we actually begin the book with a fairly apocalyptic fantasy, couldn't put a probability on it, in which a series of events like this almost wipes out the human species. As I said, we can't put a probability on it. It's not uh, that I think that's terribly likely, but it's possible. And there are many, many other scenarios that are like that. And the real worry is, how could we avoid all of them? Yeah, and one of the real worries, of course, is that we're not talking about it. As you wrote, we are lacking an informed democratic discussion. And of course, the purpose of your book is to prompt us to have these discussions, because on one level, we can solve a lot of things if we actually face reality and and really work together using our collaborative creative methods. Tell me where this has worked in the past. Where, where have you seen this model of really just having people discuss things openly help things? Well, I think it's actually worked throughout human history. I mean, perhaps there's a model for this in the events leading up to the, uh, the breakaway of the then colonies from the mother country to form the United States. People sometimes do sit down together and they solve problems together. When um, the French political theorist de Tocqueville came to the United States, what impressed him most about American democracy was the ways in which the New England town meeting worked, the ways in which people got together and solved their problems on a local scale. This happens even on a smaller scale than that of a town. It happens in families. I mean, we are, I hope, beyond the days in which a father knows best and the decisions are handed down from the head of the household. Um, you know, families work out 
what they're going to do and how they're going to do it through joint discussions, often involving uh, children who are either young adults or even adolescents. That seems to me the sort of model that can help collective problem solving. So I'm so glad you, you, you pointed to this feature. It does seem to me that when people respect one another and when they realize that they differ and they commit themselves to trying to work through their differences and decide on a plan for going forward, that's democracy at its best and its deepest. Both Evelyn and I have this sort of profound commitment to democracy as the great political ideal. And if democracy is not working well at the, you know, the institutional public level, we think that it's worth giving it a try at the private level. I think it's possible in all sorts of, of settings. I think it's possible around the family dinner table. I think it's possible in your church or your synagogue or your mosque. I think it's possible in your workplace cafeteria. I think it's possible in your PTA group. I think it's possible in all sorts of places. And that's what we would like to see happen. The decency and camaraderie and solidarity of ordinary people beginning to start a movement that eventually says to our politicians, this can't be ignored any longer. We've got to do something about it. If you were just joining us, my guest is Philip Kitcher. He, along with Evelyn Fox Keller have written The Season's Altar, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. In preparing for this interview, I also uh, watched a lecture that you gave at Hofstra University. And there you, you mentioned something that really caught my eye, and I want to move to the ethics of this kind of thing, uh, the unfairness of it. I mean, America, 5% of the population, uh, consuming 25% of the world's oil. And you talked about a reservoir how of the atmosphere and how much it can take in terms of greenhouse gases, right? And, yeah. and we've used up, that is the United oh, States, 30% yeah. or something like that. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about sure. the ethics of fairness <laughs> in regards to this problem? So if you think of yourself for a moment as being somebody from a developing country, uh, it might be India. I mean, in India, as you probably know, the electricity supply is intermittent. And the Prime Minister um, really wants, as part of his mission, to uh, uh, get India developed and to, uh, and to provide electricity for uh, every one of his billion citizens. And at one stage, before he signed on to the Paris Agreement, and I suspect this is still not off the, off the table for him, uh, he was planning to uh, go ahead and use a lot of the soft and rather dirty coal that is available uh, on the Indian subcontinent to build a lot of new power stations. And if you imagine yourself in that position, you say, well, why not? You, you guys did it. You've made this mess. Um, why shouldn't we now industrialize in the way that you have? And if the affluent world now says to countries like India or Indonesia, or Brazil, or many African countries, no, you can't do that. You can't have a reliable electrical supply. Uh, sorry, it's too late. Then we have to come to grips with a very fundamental fact. So what we've learned from climate science is that the atmosphere can only absorb so much of the greenhouse gases. So you can think of it as, as a great big box in the sky. And the nations that have industrialized have, have put lots of stuff in that box already. And you might think that the appropriate way to divide things up is that each nation would get, as its share of the box, its percentage of the world's population. So if you then uh, ask the question, well, how much of our share of the box have we used up? The answer is somewhere between 30 and 40% of the box has been used up by us. The Chinese are often seen as the bad guys. Uh, they, of course, have a very, very large population. But Chinese so far have only used up 50% of their fair share. And given the policies that they have uh, committed themselves to, they're actually likely to get away using less than their fair share. 
for us to turn around and to say to other parts of the world, well, you guys have got to shape up and you've got to stop doing this, not only profoundly unfair, it's also pretty hypocritical. And just as a wrinkle on all of this, the United States, since climate scientists warned in the 1980s that this was happening, the United States in that period has used up more than its fair share. We're probably on target at the moment to get to using twice our share of the receptacle in the sky since we got told about it. This is a very tricky ethical issue. What principle of fairness can now justify us in saying to the rest of the planet, no, 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 you can't do what we've done? So from our perspective, that what this means is that this is, a, this is really a global cooperative effort. It's an alliance that we have to take on to defeat the new enemy to uh, our species, which is atmospheric carbon. And we have to work out the terms of that alliance. And we should go in with it, not by saying, um, as our current president has said, well, it's a bad deal for the United States. We should go in rather humbly and saying, look, we realize that we've caused a lot of this problem. And it's up to us not only to lead the way, but also to help you guys in your further development without making the situation worse. In other words, foster renewable energy use across the world. So uh, that's it seems to us, is the fair thing to do. And that's actually a very long way, of course, from where the country is at the moment. I suspect many people in the country, even if they think that climate change is real and is a threat, feel that you know the United States doesn't owe anybody anything. And our point is, yes, we do. And we really need to come to terms with that. I'm speaking with Philip Kitcher, author of, along with Evelyn Fox Keller, co-authors of The Seasons Alter, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts, a book about about dialogue, about actually uh, having a conversation with people. I, you wrote this book before the election of 2016. Would, and, of course, we've got, well, who knows what we have here. Would have said anything differently uh, had you written this after the election? We thought about um, about trying to revise it after the election. It seemed to us it was even more urgent to say what we'd said, and we thought it was important to keep the tone of the book, to keep the constructive, let's try to work this out together tone. We were very encouraged by the Paris Accord of December 2015, and we were encouraged that uh, towards the end of his presidency, Barack Obama did a lot to try to get international cooperation on this issue. What happened in Paris was, as many, many people have pointed out, by nowhere, nowhere near enough, but at least it was a beginning. And then to have the current president turn his back on that agreement and say, no, we're not going to do that, it's a terrible blow. But it's not done yet, and it can't be done immediately. I mean, and there are perhaps even signs in the White House that that, that was just uh, an announcement and that nothing much is going to change. But the, um, the conduct of the EPA under the current administration and the opposition to taking this problem seriously that Scott Pruitt has shown really is profoundly worrying. We can just hope that the policies are reversed, either by these people having a change of heart or more likely through another administration coming in relatively quickly so that the situation gets uh, taken care of and our species does have a, a chance at having a habitable planet. And one level, it seems to be even more imperative that it be a grassroots discussion. I mean, you almost feel hopeless about uh, the political institutions and, and the empire building and the militarism and the drilling everywhere, that really it's going to take people having conversations around the table, around their sanctuary, around wherever it might be. This is a point that Evelyn made to me many, many times. I mean, she was active during the 1960s and remembers how people got together and they talked about issues about Vietnam and how that made a huge difference. I think we need the same thing here, that the things that happen at the grassroots will start reverberating in Washington 
Philip Kitcher has been my guest, author uh, with Evelyn Fox Keller of The Seasons Alter, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts. Very readable, very important. Thank you for this work, and thanks for being with me today. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Don't be fooled into thinking that Hollywood is a left-leaning institution. My next guest shows that Hollywood and Washington are part of a system that is hardwired to encourage American global supremacy and frequently the use of state violence. The Pentagon and the CIA are intimately connected in manipulative ways to control our entertainment. He and co-author Tom Secker expose it all in their new book, National Security Cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. Next on Progressive Spirit, don't go away. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Dr. Matthew Alford is a teaching fellow in the Department of Politics, Language, and International Studies at the University of Bath. He's with me via Skype from the UK to talk about national security cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. Welcome, Dr. Alford, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks, John. This book that you've written, National Security Cinema, uh, talks about the relationship between the U.S. government and Hollywood uh, being more political than acknowledged. Can, can you talk about uh, a little bit about the scale of this and what you've discovered? A lot of writers have said that um, Hollywood is a political entity. People have argued about whether it's left-wing or right-wing or liberal or whatever. Um, but what we have demonstrated here is the level of military involvement in the creation of uh, and changing of film scripts. Uh, and in terms of scale, if you ask any expert how many films have been affected directly at script level by the military and CIA and other major organizations, they would have said, maybe 200 or so, you know, over the whole history of Hollywood. But what we have demonstrated through acquiring, mainly through acquiring government documentation from the Pentagon, from the CIA and others, is that that figure is hopelessly low, hopelessly low, and it has accelerated considerably over the past 15 years or so. We are suggesting that there are actually thousands of products that have been affected uh, since the dawn of um, Hollywood by the national security state. Uh, and a lot of the time that involves script changes and at least for big chunks of the time does involve script changes that are very political as well, which basically means that Hollywood is um, kowtowing to the military interests of the American government. Uh, you said, uh, you wrote in your book about 814 films uh, between 1911 and 2017, uh, 1,133 television titles. And then if you count individual episodes in which... Uh, the military has some involvement in the script. You're, you're talking thousands of products, shows like 24. So uh, any, almost any time we turn on the TV, we might expect uh, some uh, involvement from the Department of Defense. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a fair characterization. Uh, we're not saying that every single pro program is um, affected by the government, and nor are we saying that even uh, films with the military in it are necessarily affected. Something like half of the films that involve, um, that depict the military, have had military support in some form or another, and a lot of those will have had script rewrites done. But yeah, it does happen. I mean, I turn on the TV most nights around about 11 o'clock, and, you know, I, I can always spot, you know, is this a film that's had, uh, you know, it's had Department of Defence support? Um, is this a film that's had CIA support? You know, probably one night in two, I'm channel flicking, and I'll find a film or a TV show that has been affected at script level by uh, by one of those entities. What changes would the Department of Defense put into a film? The changes are often quite subtle. I mean, for a start, the first thing, if you want to know if it's been done or not, is that with the Department of Defense, usually 
um, they will write at the very end of the film credits, special thanks to the Department of Defence. Um, they tuck that away right at the very, very end of any credits, but they are kind of obliged to do it. Um, there are um, at least a dozen, probably quite a few more actually, where films have um, had Department of Defence support, for example, the Green Berets back in the 1960s, most famously, but also Tomorrow Never Dies and um, se several other sort of well-known ones. They've had Department of Defence support, but haven't declared it. Um, and that's particularly dodgy, as you can imagine, because that's part of the definition of what propaganda is, you know, done covertly, um, you know, done to manipulate uh, without any uh, openness or transparency. The CIA does not write um, anywhere. There's no thank you to CIA, but you could, you know, you can Google it. You can go to spyculture.com, which is my co-author has put up several thousand pages of documentation, which will show the, these things. Um, but so it's quite a patchy record that the government have provided, which is one of the main reasons that we've written the book, because we think that that patchy record is the main problem. The main problem, because they're, they're not coming clean uh, with what they're doing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can you can argue all day about whether a government or an organisation of any kind should have some kind of influence over what goes into a film. You know, McDonald's sponsors a bunch of films. Not necessarily going to criticise the film for you know having a couple of seconds of a burger in it and a you know a Coke. And it's not necessarily the end of the world product placement. But if it's done covertly, um, particularly when there are political messages in there that are basically saying, look, let's show the military in a really positive light. Oh, let's get rid of that. that reference to that chemical weapons program because we were involved in it um let's get rid of that reference to iran contra a scandal that um that, uh, beleaguered the reagan administration because we don't really want to be reminding the public of uh, of this terrible scandal which involved involved the military in uh, in gun running to iran uh, and in supporting fascist um, organizations uh, in nicaragua uh, you know those kind of things keep on getting removed um quietly by the military and it's also a subtle message there, or maybe not so subtle, to influence Americans in particular to uh, go ahead and offer up their civil liberties uh, for the sake of national security. So you can get some films in there that uh, really support the CIA doing bad things, but for a good cause. Right, Patriot? Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, a lot of it is to do with... Um, uh, they're almost... They almost don't mind saying that they're doing it for recruitment efforts. Um, they, they're quite sort of um, they're reasonably open about the idea that, you know, they want to make the organization look good so that people join it. You know, that's one thing. That's one level of kind of cynicism or sort of normal style advertising. But what really, I think, irritates Tom and I much more than simply, oh, come on, join the army. It's nice. Um, what we dislike much more is that manipulation of history, just for the sake of, uh, of the image of an organisation. And these things are designed to benefit the, the most powerful people in those organisations. Uh, I, I see what we're doing as a way of uh, attacking elites, really, rather than necessarily attacking you know, the military. I mean, I've, I've got any particular problem with the people from the military. But you know, th th this is about changing history, and it, it's changing history. Uh, in the name of national security, in the name of um, the most powerful vested interests in, in this country, indeed in this hemisphere. And that's very dangerous for everybody as well. Yeah, well, give an example, if you would, of, of a film that we know about in which the uh, Pentagon or CIA or FBI has, has, has really changed the history of what happened. Well, I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, with the... Um, there was a film, 13 Days, for example, which was a Kevin Costner film about the um, Cuban Missile Crisis. The military were on at the producers of that film for a long time, trying to, um, you know, eventually refusing to provide support to uh, to the producers because they said, oh, you know, the Joint Chief of Staff didn't behave in this way. They, you know, they weren't, um, you know, sort of agitating for nuclear war with uh, uh, with Cuba. You know, they didn't fly illegal U two flights over uh, over Havana, um, and the producers just showed them you know, the, the historical documentary evidence that blatantly made that made that clear uh, and the pentagon eventually had to back off it's one of those rare cases where um where the producers sort of uh, won out really just simply by telling the truth and a decent piece of um, historical work i mean if you look at a film like black hawk down i mean the most sort of blatant example the film was about the u.s invasion of somalia in 1992-93 um they wanted one of the characters names to be changed because in real life he'd been convicted of rape when he returned from uh from the conflict zone 
Uh, and of course, you know, they changed that and they changed the, you know, they took a bunch of stuff from the book, which including like um, Marines going around um, uh, machine gunning Buffalo, for example, from helicopters, you know, just, it, they'd filmed the scene. They just said, but they said, you know, we don't want that in there. Do you mind removing that? Oh, yeah, fine. You know, this kind of thing happens all the time. It, we don't always have the documentary evidence perfectly to know exactly which scenes are removed. But if you look at the entirety of something like Charlie Wilson's War, the, the Tom Hanks movie, with those rumours around for ages that it had been supported by the CIA, no one really knew until about two years ago when the CIA finally very briefly put it up uh, on a website list just saying, oh yeah, you know, we, we did support on this. You can quite clearly see that that whole film has been gutted in the interest of um, the Central Intelligence Agency. It completely goes against the, uh, the, the whole um, sort of premise of the book about the link between um, American um, uh, CIA arming of um, the Mujahideen in the 1980s in Afghanistan um, having um, a direct impact and therefore causing uh, being a, a contributing cause to 9-11. You know, they've obviously suffered that and some of the people that were involved as advisors from the CIA admitted, you know, we tried to uh, we tried to get rid of that link um, between those two events, you know, the arming of Afghanistan and, uh, and the blowback on 9-11. So, but it's just constant. <laughs> um, all of these big films are affected, often at small levels, um, but then those small uh, those small things can have big effects on the actual representation of those institutions. Perhaps the best example is um, you look at the film Hulk from 2003. The, the military actually gave its script notes to the producers, and they had to apologise at the beginning, where they said, you know, we're really sorry, but we've had, we've had to give so many changes here, <laughs> but we've had to, to you know, to, to have our cooperation, you need to make a lot of changes. It was just a film about the Incredible Hulk, which seems really silly. But, you know, there were sort of military experiments going on there. And they sort of said, you know, let's make sure that the laboratory isn't, you know, isn't military. There was a reference to um, the effort to capture the Hulk was called Operation Ranch Hand. Um, and the military said, well, no, we don't want that because Ranch Hand was the name of a real chemical uh, attack program in the early years of the Vietnam War by us, which is incredibly unpopular. It's all defoliation. And so please remove that and change it. So they change it to angry hand. And, you know, the list of changes goes on and on and on and on. And you know, that, that's what's made this a really interesting subject for Tom and I. Um, and I think a shocking subject. And a subject that has um, been really well received, actually, by the public. I mean, bearing in mind, this is a self-published book. Um, we've sold a lot of copies and people have really taken to it because I think they can see um, that there is a great injustice gone on here that there's a lot of detail in the book that brings that out and over, over films that you you know that we've all seen that we all love but have been changed subtly to um against the interests of ourselves against the interests of audiences against the interests of creativity it's just a, it's a constant thing i'm speaking with uh, matt alford uh who along with tom secker are the authors of the national security cinema the shocking evidence of government control uh in hollywood so we often think of hollywood as as portrayed as as left-leaning uh but that may be the case for social issues perhaps but in terms of political or military issues uh i was surprised to see how many uh movies on there that i, that I thought might be you know critical of, of of the military of the United States, but but really uh, weren't when you look at it uh, more deeply. And and movies that I wouldn't think would even care, like Meet the Fockers or... Uh... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, Meet the Parents is a really good example there. Um, you know, nothing had come out about that again until um, whatever it was, the, the last year or so. Um, and only then we knew that, that the film had been worked on by the CIA. You know, one of the examples is, you know, when Ben Stiller's character goes into his father-in-law's um, office and looks around and sees all those photographs of his father-in-law, Robert De Niro, at big important events with like President Clinton and Arab sheikhs and so on. You know, originally that scene was that Ben Stiller's meant to come in uh, into that office, look around and see a bunch of CIA torture manuals. But the CIA requested that that be removed and to be replaced by the you know, pictures of De Niro with Clinton and so on. And of course, it's a small change. It's a subtle change. But that's completely altered the tone of the film. It's made it into De Niro's character is basically softened there. And although he's still funny and a little and a sort of a nasty character, sort of gruff character, he's, it's not the same as him being um, having a backstory as being 
arming and training people to waterboard, you know, and, and much worse, of course, in Central America. One of the shows uh, that you talk about in your book is uh, the interview, uh, Seth Rogen, the, the comedy where he goes over to North Korea and tries to kill Kim Jong. Tell me about the military involvement in that film. That was so confusing. And then it had the whole uh, oddity of, of the North Koreans being upset about if the movie would be produced and all of the threats. Kind of untangle that for us. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of the times when you're dealing with these documents, you really have to, um, you know, sort of write each word carefully and then check back each word carefully to make sure that you haven't made any mistakes. To to remember the exact production history of that, uh, off the top of my head, probably is beyond me right at this uh, this late hour uh, in Britain. <laughs> but basically, <laughs> the um, the military has certainly used, or the CIA, I should say, has certainly used the interview. Um, as a propaganda weapon in North Korea, because it keeps firing uh, mini discs of the film, uh, attaching them to balloons and then firing them over the border from South Korea. So that's mm. part of its kind of politicization. It was a film that depicted the assassination of um, a foreign leader, Kim Jong Un. Um, so in its very sort of its very core, it is something which is kind of political propaganda that is being, uh, you know, for the purposes of um, uh, domestic consumption, but also for uh, foreign uh, consumption. It was a comedy, so most people didn't sort of see it as a particularly sinister thing. But through the Sony hack, if you remember that from a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. it did become clear that there was State Department involvement in clearing that idea of depicting assassination. Is this okay to do? Some of the um, leading stars did say that they thought that CIA people were with them as part of that filming process. Also, there are certain shots in the uh, in the film, I think, including an external shot of the CIA headquarters, which usually cannot be acquired unless you have had formal say so from Langley. So um, for all of those reasons, um, it was certainly a, a very politicized film. There was certainly government involvement um, in the script a little bit harder to know exactly the nature of that. Uh, there may be a couple more details in the book, which I can't recall right now. Uh, well, let's talk about if, uh, uh, let's say we wanted to make a movie and have it be by one of the major industries, and it is very critical, uh, let's say, of of the military and the CIA and, and, and the Department of Defense and the National Security State. Uh, what would be all of the blocks uh, for getting that done? I mean, would that even be possible? Have there any that slipped through? Uh, well, the main problem that you have is not actually from the military and the CIA in the first instance. It would be from the studios themselves. They're not really interested in making um, subversive um, material, generally speaking, because the studios are major conglomerates which are owned by huge parent companies. And often the people on the boards of the parent companies are the Rupert Murdochs of this world. They are the right wing, often conservative certainly billionaires, certainly entrenched in with the American establishment. Uh, and that involves you know, all the way from the arms industry to the Republicans, but also over to other forms of war, other kind of warmongers like the Clintons and so on. So it's very hard to escape that kind of ideological net. Say you do get through that and you've got a very a successful concept that has got through um, and you and then you do want to acquire um, support because you want to set it on an aircraft carrier, say, for example, um, and then you go to the military. First thing the military is going to do is reject it um, on the grounds that it is um, uh, reminding the public of um, uh, of some horrendous scandal like the Iran-Contra scandal. Um, and it's also unnecessarily denigrating the White House. Now, those are the exact words that were used um, but in a memo from the Pentagon um, to talk about a Sigourney Weaver movie from 1994 called Countermeasures. Um, the script was made, it had all been green, the script was written, it had all been greenlit, um, the studio was ready to go, um, but they just, they did need an aircraft carrier, and the military just flat out turned it down. Um, but that's happened with many other films as well, including films that are even written, you know, one of the films, uh, Fields of Fire in the mid-90s, was uh, written by um, uh, the, under, the uh, Assistant Secretary of Defence, James Webb, um, you know, actually got up that high. It had it was used as a major textbook for all military commanders at the most senior level, um, and then they wanted to do a Hollywood treatment of it, 
but the PR people within the Pentagon said no. Even though everyone in the military loved it, even the top brass loved it because it was, but it showed certain negative things about the um, about the Vietnam War, such as burning down huts and stuff like that. So they rejected that. It's PR people, you know. This I'm not even against the military per se. It's it's PR people who are particularly harmful in this um, uh, in this kind of environment. But close down anything creative, any kind of change. You know, it's just it's madness, really. I first heard about your book by reading uh, an article by Graham McQueen called uh, "9/11: The Pentagon's B Movie." Uh, of course, he's 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 taking a different angle altogether. That 9/11 itself uh, was, in a sense, a, a scripted kind of event. So, what happened after the 9/11 Commission? You know, they said they didn't have enough imagination and brought all of the Hollywood people to the Pentagon to see how they could figure out how Hollywood does these things, which was rather disingenuous because really, it's uh, the Pentagon who knows. Uh, how to make movies perhaps better than anyone. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Hollywood and Washington are very close, one way or another. Um, I, I don't know who would actually know how to make a movie best or make propaganda, perhaps is the way to say it. I don't know who makes propaganda most effectively, but there is this you know, long-standing connection between those two cities, even though they're often portrayed as being poles apart. Um, that, and sometimes um, Washington is called Hollywood for ugly people. But, you know, that they are still um, uh, sister cities, I would say. Um, the uh, old head of the MPAA, which is like the union for uh, for the film industry, um, Jack Valenti, used to say that um, Hollywood and Washington are made from the same DNA. Um, and I think there's definitely something to that. You know, they're both power, they're, they're power centers. Um, Hollywood may seem like a liberal um, institution, which is flippant and silly and sparkly dressed um but actually uh, underneath that you've got um uh, well actually i mean even even look at what happened the other day when um, I, I haven't got the thing up in front of me but um morgan freeman was narrating something that's basically written by neoconservatives um a campaign against russia to criticize right. um, the uh, vladimir putin now i'm not saying that you, people shouldn't criticize vladimir putin but the way that that whole um uh the, the way that that whole thing has been, that whole narrative about um, Russian interference in elections has been whipped up and then uh, then used by Hollywood, by the Hollywood's most leading stars, um, written by the the worst of the neocons, Max Boot and so on, uh, is just uh, remarkable, really, that, that, that those uh, entities could work together in, in, in that regard. Well, it's not remarkable, actually. That kind of thing has been going on a lot but um, much more under the radar, but it has always been going on. My guest has been uh, Matthew Alford. He, along with Tom Secker, have written National Security Cinema, the shocking evidence of government control in Hollywood. Professor Alford, thank you so much. Thanks very much, John. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is the website. Catch Progressive Spirit weekly on several radio stations and via podcast. From the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be welcome.